just before I bring in Sean Jeffrey here from the Manitoba Restaurant Association, I want to play an extended piece of audio here from the start this morning. Brianna Solberg was on with McGarry and McNabb. Mackling is back next week from vacation, by the way, and then I think Breck was on vacation. But anyhow, uh, Brianna was on the start this morning, senior policy analyst at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And listen to what she had to say here, because I'm going to ask Sean about this when it comes to restaurants here in Manitoba. What we're hearing from small business owners um, is that 82% of them are increasing wages to try to recruit new staff and retain old staff. And this is not proven to be a silver bullet to help with staffing shortages. Actually, only 31% of businesses who've tried increasing wages have found it helpful. Um, there just tends to be a, a lack of qualified applicants. Business owners are in a really tough position right now, and they have to balance the expectations of job seekers with their own ability to remain competitive. This is a particularly large issue in specific sectors and um, for example tourism and hospitality those are two of the industries that have been hit hardest by pandemic related restrictions so they saw a massive exodus of workers out of those industries and now especially during the summer it's supposed to be busy season for these uh, businesses in these sectors but many are finding that that workers have just left and are looking for jobs in other sectors that are maybe more stable, predictable, and and business owners in tourism and hospitality need to reduce hours because they're just unable to uh, find the staff. Um, you know, flexibility is something that a lot of employees are looking for these days. And part of our survey, we asked, have, have business owners tried allowing greater flexibility with work hours? Um, and many have 70% tried allowing greater flexibility, but only 38% found this helpful. Brianna Solberg, Federate, Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Let's bring in live now on the phone, Sean Jeffrey, the Executive Director at the Manitoba Restaurant and Food Services Association. Sean, good morning. Good morning, Hal. How are you today? Excellent. I want to start there with you, uh, just because she was on the start this morning, and I found that sort of interesting. Are you hearing that from your members, restaurants in Winnipeg and all of Manitoba, that they're trying different things, but it's still a challenge getting good people and keeping good people? Absolutely. They nailed it. We actually work with CFIB pretty regularly on this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we just did a completed uh, a very similar survey and, and pretty much mirrored uh, the feedback that you just heard is that uh, we're, we're trying everything and anything to to attract uh, people to our industry and, and uh, give us a shot and, you know, try their career in the hospitality industry and, and wage is one of them. But even outside the box, it's you know, adding benefit programs, it's uh, adding different incentives, uh, meal programs, stuff like that, to try to attract new staff. And, uh, you know, for some it's working, but for the, in the majority of cases, it's just it's working and it's working in short term. Um, and in some cases, not working at all. So we're still struggling to find, um, you know, staff that uh, want to give the hospitality industry a shot, although it's an amazing place to be, especially now. And uh, we're, uh, we're, we're, we're seeing the brunt of that. We're seeing the brunt of that and exactly that. Restaurants changing hours, not open for lunch, uh, shortening their hours at night. Uh, I was having a conversation with a chain operator here not uh, a little bit last week, and I was surprised to hear that their restaurant that had a pretty successful lunch business at their locations uh, were only operating from, from 4 to 9 o'clock at night now because they just don't have the staff. And uh, that's that's pretty disheartening. You know, this is uh, we need to have lunch restaurants too, and uh, it's getting harder and harder to find one. 
it's a head scratcher for me because we get the new unemployment numbers in and some would argue we're at full employment right there you know you look at the numbers and you think and yet your industry and others are struggling to find people where where is everybody it's a, it's a head scratcher for us too and you know and we even get the feedback from our own provincial government that uh, we're back to normal and everything is, is good to go and that's just not farther from the truth um you don't need to talk to uh, a single restaurant operator in this city and he'll counteract that on, on a on a whim you know it's it's just not reality uh, we are struggling to find employees we have been struggling for you know close to two and a half years now to get employees um and uh, we don't know where they went um but I think the biggest uh, the biggest factor that's really affecting our industry is immigration. You know, lack of immigration right now um, into the country. And I know that I heard uh, you know last week they announced some uh, you know some uh, news that uh, they're trying to increase that, and that's great. But we just haven't had it, and that is a very large supporter and employer of our industry's immigration. And without having that over the COVID and then even coming out of it, has made a significant impact on our ability to track staff to the industry. So um, it's definitely a head-scratcher for us too, but uh, we're seeing that those are the, a lot of the uh, major stumbling blocks that uh, we're running into. What about uh, Ukrainian refugees uh, that have arrived mm-hmm. in Canada? I know Gimli has an initiative that's put many of them to work. They need people up in, in Gimli. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you hearing any cases of uh, new Canadians from Ukraine being utilized yeah. in your industry? Absolutely. Yeah, I know we've actually heard some really good uptick of, of, uh, of these refugees coming into our industry because, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, food's passionate. You know, the Ukrainian you know, community is fat passionate about food. Obviously, we are too. Um, so that's a great place for them to start. And, and, and we just love to have them. They're such amazing workers um, to have in our industry. Yeah, we are. But just, you know, it's such a, a large hole to fill, mm. unfortunately, of, of who we've lost during the pandemic and then even coming out of it that, you know, even, you know, we get two steps forward and five steps back. And, you know, we're we're just not able to to really recoup the amount that we lost. And it's still uh, still a challenge. But uh we're doing everything and anything we can, uh, you know, working with the various levels of government to try to, to try to entice people to get back into our industry. And we're doing everything we can inside the restaurant walls to try to provide them uh, the most uh, benefits they can um, you know, to come back and, uh, and give us a shot again. I have one more question. You reached out to me and asked if you could come <laughs> on and talk about something. I promise we'll get to what you want to talk about in a second because I think it's important as well. I do yeah. have one more question for you. I was out for lunch <laughs> yesterday at a, at a chain restaurant. I was, I was meeting a friend. And he ordered wings. Well, they didn't mm-hmm. have any wings. So I know the manager. I was chatting with the manager. He goes, yeah, we, we get wings in. We got them for a couple of days, and we don't have them for a couple of days. I talked to another restaurant owner who says, I can't get a glass to put beer in. Like um, somebody else was telling me that uh, they have a certain color in their gravy. They like to have in their gravy, and they can't get the, that particular coloring for the for the gravy or that gravy mix. Yeah. It's. Uh, I mean, these are challenges too, right? I mean, how do you operate a restaurant when you can't get a glass, or there's, or there are certain products you can't put on on a plate and serve? It, it, this has to be incredibly. Yeah. It's a million dollar question. Yeah, it's a million dollar question. How do you do that? And you know, these poor these poor restaurant operators, like trying to you know mitigate all of these challenges, and supply chain is one of them. Supply chain, labor, increasing cost and inflation. Like we're coming out of a pandemic, you know, sitting on a mountain of debt that's you know twenty feet high and. And they're trying to mitigate all of these different challenges and trying to still provide, you know, a, a, an amazing place to go out and enjoy, you know, food and family with your, you know, with your family and friends. So, you know, it's tough. Yeah, running out of product um, regularly. I, I was out for dinner yesterday myself, ordered two items, and they said they were out of both. And uh, I'm like, wow. And it's, you know, it's, it's very challenging, you know, because we really want to provide 
a low to no stress environment dining experience in any of our restaurants. And when you when you tell someone that you don't have the thing that they because specifically came to do that, you know, it's it's stressful, you know. But man, I'm telling you, they're 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 spinning around trying to figure out ways to kind of keep people uh, keep people on the go and and trying to mitigate some of these challenges. But it, uh, it gets a little challenging some days for sure. Yeah, and then the cost of you know, I mean, there, we could go on and on, but I want to get to what you reached out to me yeah. about, and this is important. You in mm-hmm. the restaurant business have noticed particip- participation. Often restaurants will have fundraising events or, you know, things like that, activities that they want people to come out to, and and there just aren't as many people showing up at those events. Well, in these things, this is all collateral damage, right? So for the lack of staffing, for example, you know, our restaurant association here, we have have a golf tournament every year. Obviously, we're a nonprofit organization. We use events like this to try to fundraise so that we can keep the, you know, keep supporting restaurants and being that voice for the industry here in Manitoba. And you know, I've been I've been around a long time in and out of the restaurant association, even as an associate and a supplier member. And you know, these tournaments sell out real quick. They're usually you know quick to get uh, snapped up. And we've never uh, even offered golfing to the industry. Usually, we'll just fill it with our restaurants uh, and and the members. But with the lack of staffing and the in the in the inavailability of people to run their restaurants, we're just we're just not seeing the uptick. These restaurants can barely support their you know. The, the restaurants with the staff they have so sending them to a golf tournament doesn't make a whole lot of sense unfortunately and obviously we want them in the restaurants you know trying to keep them uh, keeping them viable so yeah it provides challenges for for organizations that use these you know we support charity with ours this year we're working mm-hmm. with leftovers.ca which is a, a food uh, recycling company that takes uh, unused food and donates it to charities yeah, um, and, it, and it plays an impact right and so yeah we're, we're noticing it so we actually for the first time ever opened it up to the public and the public's snapping up some golf spots, so we appreciate that, and uh, we know they will. But, uh, yeah, it's something that we've just never seen. And, again, it, it, this uh, this ball rolls downhill, but it takes out many walls on the way down. And uh, we're, we're just certainly hoping that uh, that uh, this is a short-term uh, situation because we've got some pretty key events that are coming up in the next 12 to 24 months that I know that Manitobans will be happier coming back, and uh, we want to make sure that those are available for them to go to. Have you got some spots left for people if somebody listening wants to get involved? Yeah, yeah, we do. We have a couple spots left over, and it's an amazing tournament. Well sponsored out, you know, food and drink at every single hole. It's it's super fun, super passionate. And if you want to just check out the restaurant association website if you want to register a foursome. I think we have a few spots available still. Sean, appreciate your help today. Thanks a lot. Pleasure as always. You take care, Hal. Thanks. Yeah. Sean Jeffrey, Executive Director at the Manitoba Restaurant and Food Services Association. <laughs> Dr. Cyrus Dirksen, drcyrus.com, D-R-S-Y-R-A-S.com. How was your time off, Cyrus? Well, it was very good. It was good to get away. We drove through BC. And oh, nice. It was beautiful showing the kids, that kind of thing. How's your summer going? It's going pretty well, yeah. Um, finally getting a little time at the lake, which is nice. The first half of the summer, the weather wasn't great and just didn't get out there, but it's nice to be enjoying a, a bit of the cottage. And, uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's going well. You've got some good stuff that we're going to talk about uh, this week, and I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Let's start with the one that interests me most because I've read about this, and I find this so incredibly interesting. Headline is, why are young people having less sex? I keep reading that young people just are not having sex. Why? You know, I mean, when I read about this, I kind of feel like we don't really know. I think it's just at this point, this just really intriguing idea, this really intriguing finding that we're finding in different countries now. I remember first reading about this, you know, in 
I think it was in Japan, and now it's kind of it seems to be in Germany and in North America. And um, so I can go through some of the reasons here for sure. Sure. But uh, just bear in mind, I think like I think this is something that people are just figuring out. So yeah, so people are less interested in young people are less interested in sex. They're less interested in sex on their own. They're less interested in sex with other people. They're just less interested in general. Hmm. And I think you know, uh, I think that's just really hard for people to understand because I think when when people were thinking about the internet and smartphones and the access to images and things like this and media related to sex, I think there was this idea that w- that it's actually going to get uh, more. People will be more interested in as, as they get more access. But, you know, just some of the reasons that was listed in this article was kind of the Me Too movement, you know, that people are, uh, some people are getting nervous um, about uh, having sex because of consent issues. Mm-hmm. They They even listed... Um, kind of that sex was getting more complicated because it was, you know, not just about kind of how you feel or what you would enjoy, but it was actually getting to be more and more about who you are. Like it's an identity related thing. And so it was getting more complicated for people um, that people are, and then you get into the internet stuff, which is um, again, originally I think people were just thinking that there would be more sex, more access to sex and more uh, of it, more of that activity. But it seems like there's less, and so people are kind of going the other way, trying to explain it still with the internet, and saying that people just aren't as interested in, uh, you know, com- having conversations with people. And I think people can understand that. It's like if you have access to the internet and it's all just so immediate, why would you put up with with uh, talking to a real person? I think that theory kind of makes sense. But people are still not as interested in having sex uh, or gratifying themselves just on their own, and. So that, I think, is harder for people to explain because you have all this access to this media. So why are people doing it on their own then? And what they're coming up with here, the reasons that they're thinking about is because uh, they're just feeling there's not as much mystery around it and they're feeling inadequate. Like when they're um, they're able to access all this information and all these images and they're not, they, you know, even though people know it's kind of a fantasy, know that it's not real in that sense, they still compare themselves to it. So there's just this less curiosity and there's a uh, kind of feeling inadequate about it. So they're not engaged in, in the same way. Hmm. Um, I think that there's, again, I, I feel, you know, when I, when I read these, these, uh, this research on it, I end up feeling a little dissatisfied. I think it's interesting. I think it's a good first attempt to try to explain this. Uh, but it's, it seems to be an effect. I don't know if it's because it seems like it's most likely because of the internet, because that's just this main thing that's kind of come across and changed so many things in young people's lives. And it's so like in, in these different countries, and I think there's going to be better explanations. I think that we're going to be continuing to see research on this uh, because it's just fascinating. Not just that there's less sex between people, but that there's even just less interest in sex yeah. in general. Uh, I think it's fascinating. Yeah, it really is. Um, and, and you know, what role did the pandemic play in this? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, did some people uh, maybe not have as much sex during the pandemic? And mm-hmm. after, you know, as restrictions started to lift and stuff, uh, they thought, mm-hmm. well, you know what, maybe it wasn't such a big deal. But then that kind of doesn't explain what you're saying about people uh, not having sex on their own. So I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's a, It is really interesting. It's going to be and I'm sure people are doing, uh, you know, research now, and, and we'll hear about it, but it's it's really interesting, so uh, we'll keep an eye on that one. Uh, the other headline, we've got two more with, with Cyrus here, but the other one that I was really interested in, people are smart enough to see through misinformation. Uh, I'll just say mm-hmm. this, Cyrus, before you begin. 
not all people are smart enough to see through misinformation because I hear from some of those people on a daily basis. But go ahead and, and tell us about this particular article. Oh, that's funny, Hill. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, what they were saying here was that there's something called the third-person effect, which is and, – and this is this is kind of the way you hear people talk about it, which is like, I'm not – I'm okay. You know, I don't have to worry. No, nobody's worried about themselves, but they're worried about everybody else. So this is a third-person effect where people feel like they can judge, uh, but that other people can't. And it could, it could actually explain quite a bit of this worry that people have about misinformation. Um, and so that's, that was the kind of the main, you know, thrust here is like, you know, we're worried about people, but, but people are actually, um, more stable in their beliefs. They have a lot of cognitive mechanisms in order to keep them away from extreme beliefs that are dangerous for them. And they gave a nice example. They were talking about kind of an extreme media show where, you know, they were talking about a lot of different things. And this was about the pandemic. And they were like, even though this, this media show had all of this stuff on it, they pulled the audience, people who watched the show regularly, who were devoted to the show. So most of them had the vaccine. Um, and so even though people are even exposed to this or even adopting it kind of like as their media source, they would still uh, kind of have, it takes quite a bit to get somebody to actually change their entire worldview um, from one thing to another. So that was, that was one of the big things that they were talking about. Then they started, it was interesting. They were saying that if you try to warn people, about how there's a lot of misinformation out there can actually make it worse because they don't just become less trusting of misinformation, they become less trusting of all information. So if you mm. kind of tell somebody, you know what, they make these videos, and these videos can look real, but they're not real, and they, they, they're so convincing, people will be like, oh, you're right, and then they actually become less gullible or less believing of those things, but also of everything else, even that's real. Um, so that can kind of get you into a backwards place as well. Uh, and, and they were also talking about how we're worried about propaganda influencing people, but how in reality um, there's evidence to show that our leaders are more, maybe even more influenced by us as an audience than we are by them. And so when you look at what media, with the propaganda that people are putting out and all that, it's not so much designed to change our minds. It's also designed to get them attention. I'm putting out the propaganda that you want to hear. So those beliefs aren't changing. They're actually activating the beliefs that are already there in the population. Uh, now, some things make them more obvious, like when you have a pandemic and things become more oppositional and, and rubbing against each other, those beliefs become more obvious. Um, but it's not necessarily that they're changing. Now, but you're right, there are people out there who do who are gullible. I actually do assessments for IQs, and people who have extremely low IQs are, and I'm not, it's not just this category, but that's just a good example of people who have difficulty processing information, and they can be very gullible, and we do need to be thinking about our vulnerable populations all the time as well. Uh, so it's just an interesting mix to think mm -hmm. that, hey, we're actually influencing our leaders even sometimes more than they're influencing us. And some of this is there, not because people are convincing about us of it, but because it's actually just been there a long time, maybe under the surface. Well, and what you said at the start there about us being worried about people believing misinformation, but in reality, uh, only a few buy that stuff. That makes mm -hmm. some sense to me too, because I think often... Again, I'm just going by text messages, emails, and, and phone calls that I get. Um, it, it, you hear things sometimes from people and you go, wow, you know, but it's a, mm. it is a very small vocal minority. I think you're right. Mm. I think most people get it. They understand mm -hmm. when, you know, they know to research and check the source and where are you hearing this from. But I think maybe when we hear it, we go, Come on, you know, and we think it's a bigger deal maybe than it is. I, I don't know. One more headline here for Dr. Cyrus. Low to moderate doses of stress 
may fortify resilience. I've said this to you before, Cyrus. I used to be a stress. I love stress. And as mm-hmm. I get older now, I the way less of a significant incident occurrence stresses me out so but this mm-hmm. is interesting because you're saying here that some stress is is maybe desirable this has been an idea that i believe for quite a while it's nice to see this research on it um i actually almost wrote my thesis on uh the idea of underutilization, under being under stress the stress of being under stressed uh, i did all the all the stressful research on it and then i ended up changing my topic at the last minute so anyway but um <laughs> There are, yeah, this actually, uh, when I'm working with people, I actually try not to use the word stress just to, because it's kind of confusing to talk about stress that's good for you or da 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 So I actually use the word pressure. Uh, so I say, are you, uh, like, so I'll leave the word stress as being bad because we have that connotation so deeply ingrained in us. And I'll just say pressure. So sometimes people have the right amount of pressure. So they have no stress, so to speak, like they're in good shape. And then we want enough pressure. Uh, the kind of Goldilocks phenomenon they talk about in this article, we want just enough. And some people have a very narrow, I find some people have a very narrow Goldilocks zone where you have just enough pressure and some people have a, have a broader one. And then if you get overpressure, then you'll experience, you know, distress. You have this, you know, overwhelmed feeling. And if you are, don't have enough pressure, then this is the kind of very, very widespread, huge problem in our society that we don't talk about is the low levels of pressure that are that some people are experiencing that can lead to a lot of distress. We don't emphasize this enough. And I experience it all the time because I deal with people who are off of work because of some kind of physical injury or because of some kind of mental uh, injury, and they are not being utilized. They are not experiencing the pressure in their lives, and they deteriorate. And so this idea of, like, the sick role, we need to, you know, put somebody in bed, give them, you know, chicken soup, and uh, help them to get better. That that can be very true. It's a very true thing. I'm glad we have the sick role. But there's also this other side of it where it's like it can actually, over the long term, can make somebody very distressed and have feelings of worthlessness. All kinds of things come from that. And it can happen after retirement. It can happen in all these different ways in all these different stages of life. People who fail to launch from their home and they're growing up and they're living in their parents' basement, that classic picture, they can't get out. Uh, they're under-pressured and they, they haven't learned to deal with the stress of life or the pressures of life. And so finding yourself, and so I have a lot of people who will come to me who are depressed or anxious, and I'm actually increasing the pressure in their life in order to help them. I'm like, you don't have enough problems. You need more problems in your life. You need, problems give us meaning. They help us to feel worthy uh, when we can contribute to something. Um, and so if you're out there and you're not feeling good and you look around your life and you've got nothing in it, uh, I mean, I can't, diagnose that or tell you what to do but one of the things you should consider in that situation is maybe you need more pressure maybe you need to go volunteer maybe you need to go find something meaningful that you can do in order to feel better about your life in order to actually activate your brain and get back into that goldilocks place and it's kind of like working out if you work out you are you know ripping yourself up ripping up your muscles but if you do it at the right amount it actually makes you stronger if you do it too much you get an injury and if you do it too little you get weak and so we need to get people into that right level. Interesting stuff. Cyrus, good to have you back in the mix. Oh, for sure. Thanks, Hal. Thank you. Cyrus Dirksen, DrCyrus.com, D-R-S-Y-R-A-S.com. Every Friday after the 11.30 news.